0: Last week, Victoria's Planning Minister Richard Wynne overturned a recommendation by Heritage Victoria to save Boiler House, a large, unseemly tower in Elphington, constructed to power the former paper mill there. In his announcement, Mr Wynne said that the tower is an eyesore, a relic of the past and needs to go. Others though, including Yarra Councillor Stephen Jolly and the Melbourne Heritage Action Group, have said that the building is of architectural and technical significance and should be saved as a reminder of Melbourne's industrial past. So what's in an ugly building? Dr. Dave Nichols has all the answers. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne and joins us in the studio as he does monthly. Welcome Dave. Uh, thank you
1: Dylan. So should the tower stay or should it go? Personally I think it should stay I, and I, I'm not even um, of the opinion that it's a particularly ugly thing or, or at least it's it's something that could be made you know interesting and uh, in many ways attractive and I think it's you know I'm, I'm all for uh, unique place making kind of, you know, um, relics or otherwise, you know, iconic buildings, I think, are uh, uh, what gives the city a kind of, you know, character and, dare I say it, you know, purpose in a way. Mm. And it is, um, I guess,
0: uh, iconic and it certainly stands out. If anyone's driven along Heidelberg Road, it's that huge tower that you see kind of on That's the side the of one. the road that you <laughs> can't miss.
1: <laughs> you can't miss it. It's a great big, uh, what's it called, curtain wall. It's like a, it's, uh, and it's, um, I always, anytime someone says anything's the first anything, I always grit my teeth. But um, <laughs> it's certainly an early example. Sixty-three years old. It's a, it's an early example of of that kind of structure. So the the external wall is made of glass and it's not load bearing, uh, and it's uh, it's a, so it's quite a it's quite a fascinating you know as an industrial building, it's quite fascinating. I think that um, you know if anyone, I drove I drove past there on um, Saturday afternoon. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to see that the actual, the main, um, paper mill building is, the factory building is all gone now. Mm. Um, so it's really weird to see, and they're, they're pulling up, if they haven't already, that, that, anyway, the railway line, uh, that, that went in there is gone. That might have been gone for a while, I'm not sure. But, um, so there's – so it's, you know, a lot of change happening there and, of course, the site is going to be largely unrecognisable but it has been – it's been an industrial site there. That that factory was there for 90 years, mm. you know. It's been an industrial site and it's been part of Fairfield for that long. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to be interested in history to to at least recognise that, you know, places have different – uh, uses over time, and there are some interesting structures that are that are put in place that can be repurposed in all kinds of ways and and that could happen here it's
0: in a pretty kind of bad state of disrepair there's apparently lots of kind of asbestos lying around and and that sort of thing but it does feel like if it was um you know brought back to some kind of not so much former glory but but adapted so that you could kind of you know still see through the glass structure and can imagine something working there. i think a
1: butterfly house what do you think for sure (laughs) (laughs) i I, um yes look I, i don't know i Like, I know that asbestos is real and asbestosis is real, but I always feel like the asbestos argument is, uh, is possibly, particularly if you're gonna, if you're gonna repurpose a building completely, which is what would have to happen, well, yeah, you're gonna have to do all kinds of things to it and, and that might be, that might be one of them. Um, but the point being, if you demolish it, you're still gonna have to deal with the asbestos. It's, Mm uh, you know, I mean, gee, it's there. Yeah. Um, the asbestos argument is always going to be around because it was used in so many buildings, almost all buildings, you know, until uh, a few decades ago. So so there is that. Uh, I also personally, I mean, I just feel that it's... Um, yeah, sure, it's in disrepair. Of course it is. Uh, but it's, you know, what... It's another argument, which I think is, OK, what's going to make this place uh, interesting, unique and and worth looking at and... You know what, what's going to make it uh, worth living in, and so on. Well, mm. well, hopefully, one of the things is interesting architecture, mm. and whether that's heritage architecture uh, or not is is maybe a, a, a separate argument. But at this point, the um, there is some interesting architecture there already. So maybe we should uh, concentrate on that, and also let that be a legacy of something that has been a, a core part of that area for a very long time. It it seems
0: to me, and I I mightn't be reading it correctly and I haven't kind of spoken to a lot of people about this, but with this decision, with the the, um, planning minister going um, against Heritage Heritage Victoria's recommendation to save Boiler House, it doesn't seem to be that controversial. I mean, um, Yarra Council's been on board with it as well. I think the Greens have, don't quote me on that, but I think they support being demolished and not being part of what's going to be there later. Do you think many people think it should stay?
1: i think that many people have trouble conceiving of fairfield as an industrial area so to talk about you know not many people are talking about fairfield's industrial heritage in the way that they might talk about collingwood's industrial heritage uh fairfield is primarily a um a residential area with a little bit of um a little bit of you know commercial and it's uh it's reasonably bougie, uh, so I think that there's, there's that kind of aspect to it. It's not, it's not, it doesn't fit into the narrative, you know? Uh, I think that the, the paper factory, even though, you know, millions of Melburnians probably were slash are aware of its existence, um, you know, just, it was one of those things that kind of hid in plain sight. So for all those reasons, I think that people are not necessarily thinking about, um, about Fairfield in that way mm-hmm. and the site itself, you know, maybe it's hard to conceive as it always is, hard to imagine uh, what, what, what use that building might have. There are other, um, industrial, there are other sort of, in inverted commas, heritage, uh, elements that, uh, are being talked about being retained on the site as well, um, but uh, once again, I don't. I don't think that that's necessarily written in uh, stone.
0: Mm. And when a lot of people think of heritage, their mind immediately goes to kind of old Edwardian houses, older buildings built maybe a 100- hundred. 200 years ago in Melbourne, but I mean heritage, of course, encompasses a lot more than that, and it's about retaining aspects of our architectural history and industrial history and, and that sort of thing. And I mean, if we go to another city in in Sydney, where there's been controversy around plans to um, demolish the the Sirius building there, the New South Wales Treasurer. Definitely doesn't see the beauty in that particular example of brutalist architecture. Saying you'd, you'd need a PhD to mm. have any sense of, of why
1: a building like that should be worth saving. It explains why I think it's worth saving. <laughs> um, well, everyone should have a PhD. That's my feeling. But um, also, uh, <laughs> it keep you in a job, wouldn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's hey, that's true. It would. Um, what have you heard about my job? Um oh, no, now, you, anyway, you give people PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. Um, so. Yes, and the serious building. I mean, I think that in some way, I think that that's political for the for the New South Wales government, mm. for the conservative government in New South Wales, in in a number of ways. But it's also, you know, somewhere whether they. are they're totally consciously aware of it or not. I think the Sirius building is a bit of a thorn in in their side because it's it's part of the um, the, the existence of the Sirius building comes partly out of uh, trade union agitation for uh, retaining residential property in the in the Rocks for low waged people, and the Rocks was always was a traditionally working class area. That um, you know, of course, every you know, is there any part of of sydney where working class people can really afford to live you know aside from you know in sleeping bags on on, you know in the in the streets um there's um so that you know so the serious building has that kind of legacy to it which i think is kind of annoying for some people but also of course there's just that general and you hear it as well about um housing commission properties around you know, the housing commission flats around around the city of melbourne where people say well you know uh how how come those people kind of um, are allowed to live in you know high rise flats with great views you know and i can 't afford that kind of thing so um the serious building also looked like it was just prime real estate uh yeah and it 's you know i think that to to go to that idea that it 's not an attractive building is i mean- it 's a beautiful mm. building i think in in lots of ways and it 's very very functional and mm. very you know obviously uh for it 's been there for 30, you know, um, um, 1980, almost 40 years. Um, it's a, um, it's a terrific example of all kinds of things, including, you know, yes, late brutalism, brutalist architecture. I mean, I think that in the last 10 years, I remember like 10 years ago, I was part of a small campaign, but very successful campaign to, uh, rescue the Harold Holt pool mm. from um, major renovation and there was no suggestion of tearing it down but there was uh, there were some moves to change some parts of it which didn't really recognize the original vision of the of the pool and there still there still is a, a core holdout of people who see no value in brutalist architecture or indeed any you know any any architecture of post-war period and there's all kinds of reasons that come into it um, all kinds of reasoning and all kinds of rhetoric that comes into it um a lot of which you know you can just like uh, pick apart in seconds um but essentially i think people are have to remember and this goes to the the, the boiler house um story as well um opinions uh, aesthetics change over time mm. and uh recognizing the 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 value of something as a as a structure as an important structure uh is the first step but you know you you do have to listen to the experts i think uh to a certain degree when people say this is uh really important for this reason not all heritage buildings are important because of what they look like in any case but um you know aesthetics do change and I, and i think more and more people now are uh, are recognizing the value think about the um in the Morris area all that all that move to rescue, and not just Morris, but, you know, other parts of the southern suburbs, particularly of Melbourne, moves to uh, rescue those uh, post-war houses of extraordinary architectural mm. value that are just being dismissed. Uh, they're often on big blocks. Um, they're often... Oh, In many instances, owned by people who uh, just want to demolish and 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 realise some uh, some value from re subdivision, but they're often you know irreplaceably remarkable places, and they they often um, you know there's more and more people coming forward and saying uh this is this is this is what melbourne means to me Mm. to a certain degree
0: just tuned in we're speaking with dr dave nichols from the university of melbourne all about protecting ugly buildings and sometimes not so ugly buildings as well and i mean to go to that point i guess dave do we do heritage protection or are there problems with the way that we do heritage protection in victoria
1: well always but you know one of the one of the funny things i think is that um what you see, if you look over the the time period, you see that um, there's there's often a, a you know we generally see our our economic uh, system going in a in a series of cycles of downturn and upswing, and we haven't had a downturn for so long, but uh, the downturn is often the time when buildings. Um, you know, people stop and smell the roses on mm. particular parts of the built environment. And so there are a lot of buildings in existence in Melbourne that really owe their continued existence to the fact that, you know, everyone was up for demolishing them. But then, oh, no, we've got no money to, you know, we can't, <laughs> we don't even have, have enough money to demolish this thing. So let's just keep it for the moment. And then by the time uh, the economy picks up, uh, people are like, well, actually, I quite like this. Um, and there's also, you know, political upheaval as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it, it can never be, uh, forgotten the role of the unions in preserving a lot of uh a lot of the major and currently valued i'm thinking particularly the city baths um buildings around the city that you know uh, we would now consider irreplaceable and mm. and part of um a part of melbourne but yes i think there so i think there is a problem with with the way that we do I mean, no one's ever going to be you know people not everyone can never be happy you know all at once about about these kinds of things but um uh, I personally feel, and I guess you know, in one sense it, it's easy for me to say this because I don't have a you know financial stake. I don't own you know some kind of uh, putatively heritage building that I want to knock down, and someone you know I want to you know uh, I'm not in that kind of position. But uh, as a as an observer, I think that we lose a huge amount of our built environment all the time mm. to um, to rather short sighted um, decisions. Mm. And, you know, I certainly think, you know, I, I, I like our planning minister, generally speaking, in the things that he does. Um, I think in this case, you know, to sort of come in and say this is a historical relic that needs to be got rid of. I mean, first of all, that's the point of heritage legislation. Um, it's an eyesore as well. Uh, yes. And, and I don't, and I okay. actually disagree with that. And mm. I also think that, you know, future generations would be very appreciative of, of, of if that, um, if that building were retained and reused, ditto the serious building. Mm. You know, there's a. I think it's it's one of those funny things about um, the public imagination. It's hard for for the public, or it's hard for most any of us. We're all part of the public to imagine what a place would look like in you know even if we see you know uh, glossy colour pictures of what it might look like. It's even then it's hard for us to put ourselves in that picture, and similarly. Um, once something's gone, it's, I think it's, it's often hard for us to, to imagine what it would be like if it was still there. Mm. I know that's, you know, in some ways that's the bleeding obvious, but in other ways it's, uh, it's the way that we engage with our environment. So, you know, you, um, a good example, I guess, is, you see it all the time. You know, you walk down a street and you see a building's been demolished and you know there was a building there and you know you've walked past it a million times. And mm. What was it? I, you know, uh. Yeah, there's a big, there's a big hole. There's a big hole. And like, kind of. Well, luckily we have, um, google earth now uh so we can look back and see what was there last week um and and then we go oh i really like that building um yeah so Mm. yes i do i do think you know it's it's but it's obviously you know things are always going to be um demolished the city is always going to renew but i i think that there has to be some recognition just of the kind of interest value of Mm a of a place like you know heritage in the in that sense the kind of um they don't have to be necessarily iconic buildings, although the two buildings that we're talking about I think mm. do fit that category and should and, and would even more so going forward. Uh, I, but I do feel that the, um, uh, just the kind of, you know, keeping an interesting environment, not a, not a sterile, um, you know, a messy environment is, I think is, is what makes a place uh, worth walking around and and hanging out in and mm. uh, spending time in or even living in
0: well we've kept the Waverley grandstand haven't we that's still there <sighs> a bit of it
1: a little bit of a <laughs> it. <the> chunk yeah <laughs> yes yeah. yeah. yeah, so kind of a chunk of piece like it's sort of like the last piece of the you know last slice of cake in the fridge you know
0: you can kind of imagine how it would have looked when it was all full you know
1: uh yeah <laughs> yeah can you yeah okay yeah <laughs>
0: Dave Nichols, always a pleasure having Thanks, you on Derek. the show. And I think uh when you come back, it'll be our last show of the year, early December, if you can make that one. That'll be it for us, 2017. Well, you talk to my people. Alright, we'll do that. <laughs> okay, Thanks Dave. Thanks. Tonight, screening on ABC TV, Four Corners investigates the tax havens of the rich and powerful, examining and uncovering the length some of the world's largest corporations and wealthiest individuals go to avoid paying their fair share of tax. This morning, you might have heard ahead of the episode that it's been revealed that over 13 million documents have been leaked as part of this investigation, a collaboration with the Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Dubbed the Paradise papers they reveal insights into the inner workings of the tax haven industry over many years this four corners investigation was conducted by senior abc journalist marian wilkinson wilkinson and she joins me today on the line Marion, great to have you on triple r oh
2: thanks dylan
0: and so you reported on the panama papers for four corners uh, last year back in 2016 how does this leak the paradise papers compare to what we saw then
2: I think what we saw then was a lot more of, if you like, the underbelly of the tax haven world. This, I guess we could describe it as the uh, offshore world for the rich and respectable. So this is like 13 million documents, over 13 million documents, and half of them come from a very top law firm in the offshore world called Applebee, but there's also... Uh, a whole lot of data from tax haven registries around the world where people go and have to register their offshore companies. So that was how we picked up the um, dealings of the Queen in the offshore world, which was very interesting. Mm. That's a case where obviously the Queen doesn't have to avoid tax because uh, she only pays tax voluntarily, But it turns out that one of her investment funds from her private estate tipped the Queen into a fund that was investing in a predatory loan company, a company that um, charges high-interest loans to modest people in England. So it's a great example of how we need transparency about the offshore world because people can end up in very, very tricky and not very savoury
0: uh, investments, mm, and I want to get to, I guess, some of the revelations that have come out just this morning. Um, in the lead up to the Four Corners episode tonight, but I mean, 13 million documents is a whole lot of documents to to pour over and um, and try to kind of examine the links between particular individuals, corporations, and and um, these tax havens to what extent to what we've seen so far and i guess what we might uncover would to what extent would that make companies feel uneasy or wealthy individuals feel uneasy about um their transactions and financial records being on public view
2: I think there'll be a lot of people feeling very uneasy uh, globally and in Australia. And in fact, one of the interviews you'll see tonight with the deputy tax commissioner uh, reveals that the tax office has been trying to get their hands on these documents. They're very keen to get these ha- their hands on these documents and they have been um, working with their contacts in tax authorities in Europe to get them for Australian investigations. The Australian Tax Office has been doing a lot of work tracking down tax avoidance by multinational companies operating in Australia, and they think this uh, leak might help them if they can get the documents, and also um, documents referring to wealthy individuals. So I think there will be a lot of nervous people around the world and in Australia today.
0: And I want to ask also, I mean, as a journalist, when you're investigating something like this, I understand these um, Paradise Papers, as with the Panama Papers, were were leaked by essentially a a whistleblower. How difficult is it to try and trace these financial records when a lot of these individuals and companies would really prefer that they weren't um, exposed to the public?
2: Well, that's certainly true, and it is very hard to analyse them and go into them. But uh, we've had the advantage of, as you said, um, working with other journalists on this. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists has shared these documents with about 90 news organisations around the world, of which Four Corners is one. The documents themselves were leaked to one of the ICIJ partners, which is the, um, the German newspaper Deutsche Zeitung. And what's happened is that uh, the, all the journalists have been working together, unusually cooperating, <laughs> not competing, to um, work through these. So, for example, I was in Washington uh, about a month or so ago working through the documents with one of our Washington partners on the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross. And this is a fascinating story. He's a senior member of the Trump administration. He's a good friend of Donald Trump's. When he became Commerce Secretary, he supposedly, we thought, got out of most of his companies. He only kept a few small companies in the offshore tax haven of the Cayman Islands. We now discover... Those documents uh, those uh, companies that through the documents, those companies he hung on to, have a stake in a shipping company that has contracts with a huge Russian company that is basically controlled by Vladimir Putin's inner circle mm. so it's um, it's it's taken a lot of work to unpick this stuff but I think the advantage is we've been able to work with some really good international colleagues helping us do this
0: and just on what's I mean been um, written about uh, mr. Ross so far this morning will this prove do you think a significant headache for the Trump administration obviously in the context of the ongoing investigation that's um, that's happening over there at the moment?
2: I think it will, because I think that it will be another strand in these links between the Trump administration and Russia, where people thought they'd got to the bottom of it or got a handle on it, and then these other connections come out. So I I think that it will cause some discomfort for the Trump administration. And I also think what will cause some discomfort is the fact that a lot of companies in here are either American multinational companies or other multinational companies that people are trying to examine to see whether they are avoiding tax at the very time when the Trump administration is actually trying to wind back um, tax on major corporations, give major multinational corporations tax holidays. So I think that is the other aspect of this investigation which will make the Trump administration uncomfortable.
0: If you just tuned in, we're speaking with ABC journalist Marion Wilkinson all about uh, the uh, revelations around the Paradise Papers which have been uh, released um, just today. News has come out about this. It's also the subject of Four Corners tonight, some 13.4 million documents um, outlining the lengths that many wealthy individual individuals and companies go to avoid paying their fair share of tax. And, I mean, on the domestic front, you mentioned that the ATO has begun investigating um, some of this already. recently. Shadow Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee called for the Turnbull government to do more around ensuring that companies are paying their fair share of tax and accused the government of a a lack of interest in engaging with tax havens. Given that this is, you know, very much a a global story now, do you think there will be an appetite or or pressure on the Turnbull government to investigate this um, as much as possible and and do something about it? Yes, I I think there
2: is, and I think there will be uh, a lot of... um, new leads for the Australian Tax Office to follow on this. I think that you're right. One of the big questions that comes out of this is, are Australian laws tough enough? And certainly one of the things that we found was that even former Uh, members of the tax office are saying to us Australia does need tougher laws especially around multinationals who are using large amounts of debt to finance their operation and getting big write-offs for that and also on transparency and I, I think leaks like the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers before it really shine a spotlight on why we need this transparency because as we found out it's very hard to investigate things in the offshore world unless you get these leaks and of course they can't be relied on they give us some insights but more transparency is definitely needed
0: and I guess one of the challenges is even knowing how much money is in these tax havens and um, the other side to that is how much tax is being avoided. I've read um, Gabrielle Zuckman, the author of The Hidden Wealth of Nations, The Scourge of Tax Havens, in their book put the figure at $7.6 trillion that's in tax havens across the world, which accounts for about 8% of the world's personal financial wealth. And um, he argues that um, the hidden money amounts to an additional roughly $200 billion in global tax revenue each year that's being lost. So that's, I mean, even if that figure is correct, that's a great deal of money that's not going to governments to ensure that, you know, basic services and and that sort of thing are maintained. It's a lot of money that's being
2: lost. And I think this is why the public are very interested in these stories, because if wealthy, high-wealth individuals and if major global corporations don't pay their full share of tax, it obviously falls on the ordinary citizen to fund civil society. because. We know we all need um, schools and hospitals, but more importantly, a lot of these big corporations and wealthy individuals may rely on things like the court system, the defense system, the police, to make the societies strong and safe for them to operate on. Well, the argument is that they should be paying their fair share towards these civil institutions. If they don't pay, then people like you and I do.
0: And, I mean, having money in a a tax haven isn't necessarily illegal, is it? So I imagine coming out of this um, dump of of, of these papers, there potentially may be many legal challenges around just just where the line is drawn between what's legal and, and what's not.
2: That's absolutely right. There's a lot of um, financial deals that go on in the offshore world uh, that are legitimate, that make life a lot easier and simpler uh, for companies and corporations. The difficult thing is because they're they are jurisdictions that are hard to get access to it's knowing which ones are legal and illegal where the line is between the two and frankly often how fuzzy that line is
0: and i'm assuming this investigation isn't over it feels like just the beginning where do you see this going sort of in the immediate future
2: i think you're right it's It's absolutely just the beginning, and it's just the beginning because I think, one, you'll see a whole lot more revelations rolling out for the next week on this. And then I think you will see tax authorities around the world reacting to it and trying to use some of this material in um, investigations, big investigations they already have underway.
0: Well, I look forward to um, following the issue with interest and I'm definitely catching four corners tonight to see your report. Marian, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Thank you. And that is Laura Jean cover of the Drones, Time and Shard" from their album and Kind of Free from last year. You might have recognised it in there got a lot of airplay on Triple R at the time but um, Laura's version is a bit, of a bit of a different take on that song. It's been uh, included on the 30 Days of Yes compilation which uh, includes a whole range of great Australian artists contributing songs in support of marriage equality with 100% of the profits going to LGBTQI plus youth organisations Minus 18 and 2010 to talk about this and many other things. I'm very pleased to welcome Laura Jean to the studio. How are you doing?
3: Good, how are you?
0: Great. And um, I love that version of Time and Shut. It's um, cool. Often when I hear that an artist has covered someone, also an artist that I I like, I kind Mm -hmm. of think, oh, no, you might ruin it. Mm. You might not do it justice or just do kind of a karaoke-style rendition of that track, but that's not at all. That's a truly unique take.
3: Yeah, I just... Um, that's a, like a sketch, really. That song, like it was part of a, a bunch of demos I did last year as pre-production for this album I've been working on for years now. <laughs> but we just me and John Lee from Phaedra Studios did a bunch of demos, and I'd played around with that song live at a residency. And I just think uh, what I like about that song is there's a few sneaky hooks in there that really deserve more space, like. Why don't ev- why don't everybody feel like crying? Mm. It's like in in um, the Drones version, Gaz just goes, "Why don't anybody feel like crying?" Da, 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 and he follows it up with another little hook, like that's kind of like a balanced. Um, it's like he it balances the phrase mm. the way he sings it. He sets it up and then he answers it like a call and response phrase. Whereas I just liked why don't everybody feel like crying? It just it felt like was so mournful on its Mm. own and it's like a question that won't ever be answered yeah so I just kind of repeated that and then I really isolated some of my favorite lyrics (laughs) (laughs) and just repeated them you know just just to kind of it's because Gaz tends to write lots of words and I just wanted to create a version that had some more space to let some of the more outrageous or funny statements in it have a bit of room to be heard. And
0: yeah, yeah, he packs a lot in yeah, mean, into most does. of his stuff, but yeah. that song in particular.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> and and about the kind of is that a track that you sort of may include on on your future album when it comes out, or was it more just kind of no, playing around no. and seeing? What I was
3: just I was just playing around. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, it's all part of um, you know, I've always written folk music before. Um, And folk music's really about the the performance. When you record an album, it's about capturing the performance in a very genuine way, um, true way, whereas pop music, which I've been experimenting with for the last several years, is more about, it's actually a much more intellectual genre and people kind of say, oh, pop music, ooh. But it's actually that, it's super hard and Mm. super conceptual. It's intellectual it takes a lot of experimentation like people don't understand that pop music's very experimental it, it takes a lot of playing around to get to a good pop result yeah <laughs> so that was part of me and john just playing around with my songs and and some covers like that was just just a way of experimenting with textures and and sounds and even just singing and, yeah. Yeah, and also
0: electronics, I guess, as well. I mean, you've released a lot over the years and and collaborated a lot as well, but, but is that a very different process from working with kind of, you know, acoustic instruments and so on?
3: Yeah, because there's less limitations with acoustic instruments. You just have what you have. It's a physical, visceral process where... I mean, for my last album, we did put a bit of a sneaky drum machine on one of the folk songs on that that you wouldn't know. Like, it's just a subtle, um, texture that we felt like it needed. But, um, yeah, it's just, there's so many more possibilities. So what, what you have to do in, in the process, I found is impose your own limitations and, you have to impose your own parameters around the sound of the album, and it took me and John, the producer, quite a long time to figure out what this album, what the world of this album was. Mm. Where where were the parameters of sound? Like what what were the characters in the album? The voices. Um, it could be a synth. It could be. Yeah, it was this really complicated process.
0: And your last album, um, I was surprised when I kind of looked this up, but it was out in 2014. It feels like not that long ago, but you've uh, kept I take my sweet time.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I just take my sweet time. I just, because songwriting and and recording is something I love to do, but it's just one small part of my life and Mm. I do lots of other things. So um, to find time to do it, and I also am a perfectionist, so I have to do it. I did spend a lot of time writing this latest album that I'm going to release early next year. It's like I spent years like just working on them. Like kind of it's a cra- it's the songs are really crafted. Um they sound very simple, but I chucked out so much. Like I mm. chucked out so many words and so many songs. I threw out so many songs. Yeah, it just took me
0: ages. <laughs> are there any other um demos on the the cutting room floor that might See the light of day.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. Like we'll definitely like we'll see you know, we'll we'll release the album um when I say we I'm not doing like the royal we, I'm talking about (laughs) me and chapter music, my (laughs) label. Um yeah, like chapter will release the album early next year and if people like it and stuff then later on maybe we'll show some of the process of you know, more of the process of how we came to the sound of the album. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. And As I mentioned at the beginning, this track's been included on the Thirty Days of Yes compilation, yeah. where there's been um, new tracks added every day for thirty days in support of, of marriage equality. And mm-hmm. I guess we're getting to the end of what's been a um, you know pretty exhausting campaign with the postal survey results coming out um, the Wednesday after next. How did the track get added to to that project?
3: Well. Um the people that organised 30 Days of Yes, um, did a call out to some of their favourite labels and artists and just said, Do you have any rare rarities or something that you haven't released before that could add value to the project? So, and, um, you know, it was preferable that the song had some kind of referential content to the issue. Mm. And we just thought, Oh, yeah, Tom and Shud would work. Um, yeah, it would be an interesting. Uh, edition. So that's how it came to be. Yeah. yeah.
0: And there's a lot of great tracks on that mm. that have been, been played, you know, since, since it was announced and those tracks were being released. It's, it's fantastic.
3: Yeah. It's such a great, um, back in 2001, I was part of a similar project called Make Mixtapes Not War. Um, if you're my age, you might remember that. Um, and it was amazing. Similar thing. It was a political thing, but it was a really amazing snapshot of what the live music scene was like in 2001 in Melbourne. And it was really, healthy and it, mm. it has been healthy for a long time but i do feel like the the scene in melbourne has gained a, a lot of popularity in the last few years like mm. there's more people at gigs it's there's it's there 's more hype
0: around it than it used to be, yeah, and I guess a, a, a similar mixtape of sorts was our first 100 days in response to trump's presidency and um played a track yep. of that before but that features totally. Melbourne artists as lot as as well as artists from across the whole world
3: yeah
0: um, yeah that's it's, it feels nice and, and important that artists are willing to put their name to these sorts of issues when you know I mean th- there's Bad things have happened all throughout history, but it seems particularly, um, kind of stressful and, and negative at the moment with what's going on.
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's right in our, it's very in our world, I guess. So it, it's, um, it's maybe not, there's a lot of issues happening in the world that are huge, um, and need help. But I, I suppose this issue is, affects, um, directly affects a lot of people in the music community, such mm. as myself. So that's probably why it was such a appropriate response to make some music around it. Yeah.
0: And you posted on, on your Facebook page, I guess, a um, the personal experience of, um, engaging in a civil union in New Zealand, which you don't mm-hmm. need to be a citizen to do. People can go no, over there and there and do it. That's right. But you can't get divorced.
3: Yeah, you can, you can, <laughs> it's just, I just thought I'd tell my story because it's like, People talk a lot about, oh, I want to get married, like, you know, the, all the positives around marriage equality, all, all the positive stories, but there's other we- weird backs, you know, kind of less positive stories that are still issues. So my issue is that, um, if I wanted to get married to my ex-partner, um, we're, we're both female and I thought, well, I want to do it properly. Like we, we were like, we want to do it properly. We don't just, I mean, not, Not that it's not proper to have like your own ceremony, but me and Jen were probably pretty – I reckon I'm probably a bit conservative, you know, like I'm a bit of a trad kind of person in some ways and I really wanted to do it by the book. Mm. So we went to New Zealand and – because we could, like New Zealand welcome anyone that wants to have a civil union. So we went over there, we registered it with Birth, Deaths and Marriages – We got, um, married in that way, the civil union and then came back, broke up. Unfortunately, several years later, I inquired and they said, Oh, no, you can't, you can't get a divorce unless you're a resident of New Zealand for two years. And I'm like, so why, why, like, why can I get married there, but not divorce? And they're like, I'm sorry. I can't help you. You know, I even thought about getting a lawyer to try and look at it, but I don't have enough money. You know, like (laughs) I can't pay a lawyer to fight civil rights for me you know <laughs> it, yeah so I felt really sad mm. that I couldn't have that paperwork to help me process heartbreak it, I think a lot of people take that for granted
0: yeah yeah and that 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 marks something definitive as well as much yeah. as marriage does yeah that, that's also important to have a final endpoint on something if, if you feel you've entered into that with exactly. another person.
3: if it's a legal contract you want to be able to uh, process it and annul it if you need to, um, just like everyone else can. Mm. And I just, yeah, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why I can't do that. And yeah, it's, it's hard. I do, I do understand that people are protective of marriage as a, um, as a religious kind of thing, but, I just think it's a bit silly because it hasn't been religious in a long time. Mm. It's a secular event now, Mm. secular ritual, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and points to those kind of loopholes that exist that make it even harder for those who don't kind of fit the mainstream definition of marriage or a whole a lot yes. of other things in society would be similar too. But, yeah. but if you don't fit the bill of what's considered to be the norm, then it's a lot more difficult to have those sorts of quite simple things such as a divorce or yeah. recognised.
3: Yeah. There's lots of little moments where just having that blanket marriage um, state, you know, blanket marriage law, if you, it just makes life a lot easier. People. And it's not just about, you know, the no people go on about, well, we've got an equivalent and it's just they don't seem to understand that it's not about the law, it's also about social perception. So mm. people immediately understand marriage on a kind of deep level in our society. Um if you say you're civilly unionized, it doesn't quite have the same effect in regards to um social um effect. Mm. So if you go into a hospital room and say, "Oh, I'm this person's civil partner," the nurse might not understand what you're talking about, and then you're forced to say, "Well, this is what a civil union is," and blah blah blah. Whereas if you say, "Oh, it's all right. I'm their husband. I'm their wife. I'm I'm married to them," or whatever you want to say, the nurse goes, "Ah, oh, it's fine." Mm. So it's it's way more complicated than just having equal rights on paper. It's that's not that's that's a very kind of what's the word simplistic way of looking at it mm. it's it's much more complex and that's why it's important that there is marriage it's that that we all have that same social legal standing that um that should be available for every person.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a lot of kind of thoughts aired in the midst of this, this mm. campaign, many of them negative. But I mean, we held an event at Triple R Here Comes the Prior, which was a great celebration of, mm. you know, all LGBTIQ plus people in our community and further abroad as well. But also a reminder of the significant issues that a lot of people still face and, and why it's important to kind of campaign on these sorts of issues.
3: Definitely. There's so many people and, and people. Uh, queer people don't all live, people have this, I think some people have an idea that if you're queer, you have like a queer lifestyle or something. It's a life, you know, it's, it colours every part of your life. It doesn't. For me, it doesn't. Mm. I mean, if someone forced me to say, what are you? I would say, well, I'm queer, but it's not a thought that I have in my everyday life. I just, I'm just an everyday person living my life. And I, it, it's, it's hard to, yeah, get people to understand that, that, queer people aren't visually queer all the time. They're not living some kind of separate existence to a straight person. They're just living a human life and they deserve human rights, equal rights,
0: Hmm. yeah. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with uh, Laura Jean about a whole lot of things, but I guess um, specifically her contribution to the 30 Days of Yes compilation, which is a cover of the Drones Tum and Shud, which we played uh, just at the start of this interview. And you can check that out on Bandcamp as well. And um highly recommend having a listen. And you haven't been playing a lot kind of around town of late, but you are part of a really great event um, coming up at Melbourne Music mm-hmm. Week. Tell us about that one.
3: So that's called Miscellanea. Um, it's going to be <laughs> epic it's so exciting um i'm really excited about it lucky i don't play many shows i'm a bit I, it takes me heaps of energy to prepare for a show so i tend to say you know no to a lot of shows but this one was like yes i have to do it because i'm so passionate about the you know the strength of our music scene so it's at the um november 19th sunday melbourne town hall A bunch of record labels are taking over the entire town hall. And in the room I'm playing in is the council chambers room. (laughs) So that's curated by Chapter Music. It's got me, Fabulous Diamonds, David Chessworth, Jessica Says, Guy Blackman and Gregor. And, yeah, so the the whole event's kind of headlined by Hate Rock, who are doing a special show with the underground lovers Mm. and the big organ. So I really think it's a must. Like, I just think it's going to be such an amazing... Event and a beautiful celebration of where this, you know, the Melbourne music scene is at 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 the moment. I've never
0: actually been into the um, the City of Melbourne Council Chambers. I've been to other council chambers, but they're normally pretty nice rooms, yeah, (laughs) ornate. And
3: I I haven't either. And I've just got this vision (laughs) of me being in some kind of like on some kind of legal pulpit or like some kind of like weird area where I feel like I'm being judged by the entire (laughs) audience. Like that's kind of what I'm preparing myself for. Like it could be a really weird set up of a stage, but um I'm really excited to bring that on and make something interesting of that dynamic. Mm. So there'll,
0: there'll be robes and big sticks and yeah. all that sort of stuff.
3: I might get <laughs> like have a barrister costume or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well um well that sounds like a whole lot of fun. And and as you mentioned, your um your forthcoming album's out kind of in the early part of next year. Is there anything else you've got coming up in the in the meantime?
3: Well just um yeah, I'm just really working on – now Now I've finished mixing the album pretty much. Now we're just really working on the aesthetic and, you know, the way we're going to present it visually. So that's going to take months of work too. So I'm pretty much just not going (laughs) to play. I'm just (laughs) not going to do anything but that for over summer. And then we're going to – we'll start releasing singles really early next year so you guys can have a, you know, just – yeah, I'm really – I'm actually really excited to present it to especially Triple R because – it's a really different album for me like mm. it's and it's it's quite ambitious in its scope and oh, yeah, I'm really excited to show everyone. Great. <laughs> You've
0: kept us waiting as well. <laughs> oh, I've kept
3: a few a few sw- cool people waiting. I don't know if like it's beyond um you know, it's a niche bunch of people that I've kept waiting, <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to show
0: you well, guys. <laughs> well I, I can't wait till um till that starts coming out and um big thanks for stopping in today and um and we can catch you at the Melbourne Music Week miscellaneous show, Melbourne Town Hall, Sunday, november nineteen, alongside a whole bunch of artists, just a few of which are Hate Rock, Tyrannum and School Damage, Fabulous Diamonds, David Chessworth, Gregor, Jessica says, Glab Guy Blackman and many more as well. And also 30 Days of Yes is available via Bandcamp, including that track by Laura Jean you heard at the start of this interview and 100% of the profits from that project go to LGBTQI plus youth organisations minus 18 and 2010. Lots of great stuff on there. Laura...